Before we begin, please note that multiple and sometimes conflicting pronunciations of some Native American names were discovered as part of research for this series. Every effort has been made to pronounce these names as respectfully as possible. Please also know that the DAR Continental Congress approved the American Indians Committee in 1936, and the National Society continues to follow the lead of the federal government in retaining that terminology. For example, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Museum of the American Indian. The Our Patriots Podcast honoring the men and women who achieved American independence and taken from the pages of American Spirit, the Daughters of the American Revolution's award-winning magazine. Our trusty friends, remembering the role of the Oneida Nation in the American Revolution by Bill Hudgens and first appearing in print November-December 2016 in American Spirit magazine. While America observes Veterans Day on November the 11th, Members of the Oneida, Cayuga, Onondaga, Seneca, Mohawk, and Tuscarora American Indian nations also observe the anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Canandaigua. Also known as the Pickering Treaty, it established the peace between the six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy and the United States. At the time of the American Revolution, the Iroquois Confederacy was already a centuries-old pact that secured peace, trade, and mutual self-defense among its members. And just as the revolution dissolved the political bonds connecting Great Britain and the United States, it also ruptured the Confederacy, as the Oneidas and the Tuscaroras decided to support the Patriot cause, while other nations sided with England. Serving as scouts, guides, and warriors, the Oneidas played a critical role in the revolution in New York State. One of their most important contributions was helping the Patriots prevail at the 1777 Battle of Saratoga, a victory that buoyed sagging patriot spirits and helped convince France to become America's ally. In 1777, the Continental Congress recognized the Oneida's achievements by declaring, we have experienced your love, strong as the oak, and your fidelity, unchangeable as truth. You have kept fast hold of the ancient covenant chain and preserved it free from rust and decay and bright as silver. Like brave men for glory you despise danger, You stood forth in the cause of your friends and ventured your lives in our battles. While the sun and moon continue to give light to the world, we shall love and respect you as our trusty friends. We shall protect you and shall at all times consider your welfare as our own. The Iroquois Confederacy Many Americans are unaware that the members of the Iroquois Confederacy and other American Indians had developed sophisticated diplomatic, political, and military strategies to foster peace, independence, trade, and territorial sovereignty among themselves, said Dr. Scott Stevenson, Vice President of Collections, Exhibitions, and Programming at the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. Incidentally, in 2012, the United Nation donated $10 million toward the campaign to build the museum, which includes a gallery exploring the role of the Oneida in the Revolutionary War. It's not clear exactly when the Iroquois Confederacy was founded, but it was already firmly established by the time European contact and exploration began, Stevenson said. The Confederacy originally comprised the Oneida, Mohawk, Cayuga, Seneca, and Onondaga nations. After migrating north from the Carolinas in the early 1700s, the Tuscarora were invited to join under the protection of the Oneidas. The most important tenet was to keep peace internally within the Iroquois Confederacy, Stevenson said, 
They had a number of mechanisms to reduce and manage internal tensions, and they were largely successful up to the time of the American Revolution. One of the most successful strategies was to play various colonial powers against each other to extract favorable trade arrangements, gifts, military support, and promises to respect territory and sovereignty, he said. For many years, the Confederacy had remained officially neutral during the wars among the Dutch, British, and French. However, Stevenson noted members of each nation enjoyed considerable personal freedom, so individuals could and did choose to take part in those struggles. The policy of official neutrality broke down during the French and Indian War from 1756 to 1763, also called the Seven Years' War, when the British persuaded the Iroquois nations to side with them against the French and their allies from the Great Lakes and other Western tribes. Ironically, given the Confederacy's support of the winning side in the French and Indian War, the British victory left the Iroquois in a precarious position. The French were gone, and the Confederacy could no longer use them as leverage over the British. The war left Great Britain deeply in debt and prompted English officials to scale back on traditional gifts and support supplied to the Iroquois. The British also demanded that Native people pay more for the trade goods on which they had come to depend, such as clothing, blankets, food, and weapons. Quote, We know that colonial Americans bristled under Great Britain's efforts to raise money through taxes and new regulations, but Native peoples were actually among the first to experience that, Stevenson says. From Family Quarrel to Revolution As relations between Great Britain and the colonies deteriorated, the Iroquois nations once again debated neutrality. After the battles of Lexington and Concord in April 1775, both the British and the Patriots asked the six nations to stay out of what each side described as a family quarrel, according to forgotten allies the Oneida Indians and the American Revolution by Joseph Gladhar and James Kirby Martin, published by Hill and Wang in 2007. However, the Continental Congress also asked the Oneidas to report on any potentially warlike actions by the Mohawks and other British-leaning nations. The Mohawks were originally the Confederacy's easternmost nation and had the most contact with the Europeans. But many migrated west as whites encroached on their lands, making the Oneidas next-door neighbors to the white settlements. Unlike the Mohawks, the Oneidas generally enjoyed good relations with the colonists. Many were followers of Presbyterian missionary Samuel Kirkland, who had lived among the Oneidas since 1766. Kirkland's teachings and increasingly pro-patriot stance influenced many of the young warriors as well as powerful Oneida leaders such as Good Peter, Oneida war chief Skenandoa, and war chief Han Yeri and his wife Tayona. The Mohawks, on the other hand, had been courted as British allies by Sir William Johnson, British superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Northern Department. Having already lost lands to colonial encroachment, the Mohawks looked to the British to halt further losses. In 1775, Johnson took the Mohawk chief warrior Joseph Brandt to England, where he had an audience with King George III. The king promised to restore all lost Mohawk lands if they supported the British in quelling the rebellion. Brandt also had personal reasons to support the British. His sister, Molly, was Johnson's common-law wife. The Oneidas detested Johnson. During negotiations at the 1768 Treaty of Fort Stanwix, Johnson had forced the Oneidas to surrender a large tract of land that included the fort and the small Oneida town of Ariska. To promote dependence on the British, he also thwarted Oneida efforts to regain self-sufficiency. From 1774 until 1776, despite their patriot leanings, the Oneidas refused to take sides. 
Even as they sought neutrality, they increasingly helped the Patriots garrisoning Fort Stanwix, called Fort Schuyler during the Revolution, in honor of General Philip Schuyler. It was already located in the heart of traditional Oneida territory. During the period that the Americans garrisoned the fort, the Oneida provided them with information, warriors, scouts, spies, and aided the troops in catching deserters according to the National Park Service's history of the military base. Coincidentally, the U.S. flag was flown for the first time on August the 3rd, 1777 at Fort Stanwix. Three days later, the flag came under fire for the first time in a decisive New York battle. The Battle of Oriskany In early 1777, the British planned to wrest control of the Hudson River Lake Champlain Waterway from the Patriots, thus isolating New England from the rest of the colonies and potentially ending the conflict. General John Burgoyne was to lead an army of Redcoats, Loyalists, and American Indians south from Canada past Lake Champlain to Albany, New York. Meanwhile, another mixed force led by Lieutenant Colonel Barry St. Ledger was to march from Lake Ontario through Oneida Territory to take Fort Schuyler and then to rendezvous with Burgoyne at Albany. A third army under General William Howe was to march up the Hudson from New York City. Although the British warned the Oneidans they would face dire consequences if they opposed St. Ledger's invasion, they decided they could not allow this violation of their territory, according to forgotten allies. When St. Ledger surrounded Fort Schuyler on August 3, 1777, Kiona, the wife of Oneida chief warrior Han Yari, rode 30 miles to alert the Tryon County Militia Commander Nicholas Herkimer, who summoned 800 militiamen and set out to relieve the fort. Unfortunately, Herkimer rejected the Oneida's offer to scout ahead of the Patriots. The militia was ambushed the next day by hundreds of Iroquois warriors, as well as Loyalists and Redcoats near Ariska, a few miles from Fort Schuyler. The Battle of Oriskany, fought on August 6, 1777, was one of the war's bloodiest, with more than 1,000 killed, wounded, missing, or taken prisoner, according to forgotten allies. Herkimer was killed, and most of his militia were killed or wounded. The surviving militia retreated. The heavy British losses stunned and disheartened their native allies, who had not expected such fierce opposition, nor that they would comprise the main fighting force. They left for home, forcing St. Ledger to lift the siege after three weeks and retreat to Lake Ontario. A month later, at a conference in Albany called by General Schuyler, Unitas learned that General Horatio Gates at Saratoga needed reinforcements in his efforts to block Burgoyne's advance. At least 150 Oneidas, including Hanieri and Tayona, went to his aid. Broken Confederacy, Broken Promises At great cost to themselves, the Oneidas continued to assist the Patriot cause for the rest of the war. The war destroyed their homes, farms, and way of life. They were destitute and dependent on the new state and national governments for subsistence. According to NPS history, the U.S. government finally paid restitution for their losses in 1794. After the war, Congress promised to respect Oneida sovereignty, and in 1784, New York Governor George Clinton assured them the state had no claim on your lands, its just extent will ever remain secure to you. But just a year later, in June 1785, Clinton summoned the Oneidas to a council and demanded they sell large tracts of land. Once the land grab began, it eventually reduced Oneida territory to a 32-acre reservation near present-day Sherrill, New York, according to the MPS. A number of Oneidas moved to Wisconsin and Canada in the early 1800s. An 1838 treaty with the Oneidas in Wisconsin established a 65,400-acre reservation that has been their home ever since. In 1792, the revered Oneida chief, Good Peter, observed, quote, 
We Indians are unwise, and our want of wisdom is owing to our want of knowledge of the ways of white people. We verily thought our white brothers meant good to us, and hence we have been deceived in respect to our lands. Still, the 1794 Treaty of Canandaigua recognizing Oneida sovereignty, land rights, and tax freedoms remains in effect and is honored by both the United States and the Six Nations. On February the 22nd, 2016, about 50 leaders of the Six Nations and the United States gathered in the Indian Treaty Room of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building in Washington, D.C. to perform the 222-year-old ceremony confirming the treaty. As specified by the PAC, the U.S. government presented a piece of muslin called Treaty Cloth to the representatives. And as a sidebar to this story, DAR and the United Nation. As part of its effort to uncover and document the minorities of the American Revolution, the DAR has long been involved in helping to tell the story of the United Nation and its accomplishments in the fight for American independence. The story was publicly lauded in 2002 when the DAR Museum exhibition opened, Forgotten Patriots, African Americans, and American Indian Service in the Revolutionary War 1775-1783. It featured artifacts such as the silver pipe given to Oneida War Chief Genondoa by New York State Governor Daniel Tompkins. The exhibit showed thousands of names of American Indian and African American patriots identified by DAR at that time, and it described the methods used by the DAR to identify these individuals. The DAR Genealogy Department and the DAR Library published work on the project of a DAR volume called Forgotten Patriots, African Americans, and American Indian Patriots in the Revolutionary War. It lists state by state the names of identified minority patriots as well as the type of service given to the patriotic cause. As part of the 2002 event, the DAR presented the United Nation with a life-sized bronze eagle statue. Quote, This eagle symbolizes the peace and friendship shared by all whose ancestors fought in the American Revolution, said DAR President General at the time, Linda Tinker Watkins, at the ceremony. It also symbolizes the strength of this nation, of our diverse cultures, and of our resolve to live together in harmony. You may now visit this exhibit online, www.dar.org. I hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Our Patriots podcast and that you'll listen to future installments, each focused on a patriot who helped to win our independence. I also know that you will enjoy reading more about our nation's fascinating history by receiving a subscription to American Spirit magazine. Visit us at dar.org and search for American Spirit. Consider, too, researching your family tree and joining our service organization of dedicated women devoted to promoting historic preservation, education, and patriotism. There's something for everyone in today's DAR. This has been the Our Patriots Podcast, a dynamic duo high-five production in association with the Daughters of the American Revolution and Tim Shingle.